are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth season of the Win Win podcast. I cannot believe that there are over 63 episodes out of the podcast, and there is so much in store for this upcoming season, which has speakers from some iconic companies and innovation consultancies that you know, as well as some startups and new entrants and players in the market, which I'm very excited to introduce you to. As always, I am Zoya Kozakov, your host and global product lead at Win. always on a mission to learn more about innovation and a career trajectory in this industry and take you along with me as I ask some of the most prominent leaders in our space questions all about their experience. We are kicking off this season with the incredible Lisa Edwards, who is president and COO at Diligent, which is the leading platform for modern governance, risk, and compliance. Diligent is a SaaS or software as a service company, and they serve a million users from over 25,000 customers around the globe, aiming to use technologies to allow companies to drive greater impact and accountability, leading with purpose first. Lisa has one of the most impressive technology and software careers I have seen to date. She comes from eight and a half years at Salesforce, where she was last an EVP of strategic business operations and partner and customer engagement. She really scaled the company working on digital transformation and growth. And prior to Salesforce, she was at Visa, where she ran IP strategy and business development, and then also managed corporate services. Her other background includes being an entrepreneur, but she was also at Bain and got her MBA from Harvard. I loved hearing about Lisa's view on what it's really like to grow these giants and the ins and outs of innovation at SaaS companies and how she's transitioned from these really senior roles into being president at this corporation, Diligent, which has a really, really innovative product that I personally would hope to have a chance to use in the future. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and stay tuned for the rest of the season. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, Hi, it's great to be here. So, so excited to have you and could ask you questions all day, but I guess we will try to make it in the 30-minute increment. The first thing that I wanted to talk about is you have such an impressive career across tech, strategic business development, and companies ranging from Bain to IBM to Visa, Salesforce, your own startup, and now Diligence. So we will, of course, talk about all the various parts of your careers and your roles. But if you had to put it simply, what is the common thread behind your career moves throughout the years? You know, it's funny when people ask me um, about 
you know, looking back on your career, how do you trace the breadcrumbs back? And I think it's kind of easier tracing them backwards than certainly it would be tracing them forward. I think, you know, if you asked me when I was running a bond trading software company in Atlanta, would I be, um, you know, working at Visa uh, a couple of years after that, or would I have gone to Salesforce or, you know, Mm -hmm. it's almost like I'm back in soft, you know, in sort of not startup software, but smaller software mode again. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think some of the common threads have been things that are challenging where I felt like I could learn something and where I was sort of compelled to work with the people that I met and worked with. You know, the weird thing about my career is I actually never really interviewed after business school. I, Mm -hmm. my very first job I interviewed for, uh, at Bain. And then after that, it was literally people calling me saying like, Hey, I I know a person who knows a person who needs a person. And it sounds like something that you would do. Are you interested? And, Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of been, you know, I, I guess networking is one of the, is one of the common themes of my, you know, that ties it all together. I personally mentor a lot of young girls and they say, you know, I look at it and you've had this career trajectory where things have moved so quickly. Like, how did you move quickly? And I think even for me, who doesn't have the impressive career that you do, I look at it and it was like, once you huck one thing, you're able to just keep on snowballing that into something else. But if you had a tip for somebody who was later in their their career and does have a vast network, is there like a later in the game networking tip that you've learned, something that serves you today? You know, I think that there's a lot of narrative and it's less these days, but there's there's this narrative that uh, women don't help each other and, uh, mm. and women, uh, can be, you know, other women's biggest blockers. I've literally never found that in my career. And I think that it comes from a place of, you know, the 1980s where there really was only one spot. It was like, there's going to be one token women on the woman on the leadership team. Mm-hmm. And if you get to be it, then you gotta, you gotta fight to get there. And then nobody else gets to, you know, gets to get on the, on, in the team. And I think it's really quite different. And so I would say, you know, there is this sort of underground women's network that I feel like I've tapped into like five of them. And mm-hmm. I just have these groups of women that, you know, they're powerful and they're, but they're fun and they're, you know, we don't play golf necessarily, although some of them do, <laughs> but we get together periodically. I did that this Saturday and, um, you know, spent half a day with a bunch of women, uh, out here in Northern California and just kind of talked about what we're doing. And, you know, most of them, uh, you know, one of them uh, is Shelly Archambault. She just wrote a book called Unapologetically Ambitious. And uh, one of the other women in the the group had been sort of coached by Shelly to mm. state your, uh, you know, state your ambitions and manifest them. And, you know, it's like by putting these things out there in the world and by telling uh, other women what you're interested in or other people for that matter, because, you know, uh, sponsors and mentors and helpers do not have to be other women, but, you know, sort of getting it out there and saying, this is my goal. And this is something that I'm interested in doing. And, um, you know, you don't even have to do the ask of this is how you could help me, but putting it out there so that people can be keeping an eye out for you. I think it does serve people from, you know, the youngest place in their career as well as to, to getting to those more senior levels. I mean, I've read so many different stories about people talking, people at the leadership levels of companies talking about how they started together as interns, as well as now I see women that are more advanced in their career pulling each other in and, you know, mid-level too. So definitely, definitely agree with that. I think going back to the 
beginnings of your career. I know that your dad was what we would call an IBM lifer, and your parents were the first to go to college. But for you, did going the tech route feel accessible at a time where tech as a career path was not as available to women and people of color the way it is today? You know, it's funny. I never really deliberately went the tech route. I I was comfortable with it, I think, because, and I think that's a big part of it. A lot of a lot of people almost screen um, from women, and I feel like it's less it's less common now. You've got things like girls who code and and stuff like that. But um, I never I was never filtered from me in any way. So you know, I had a green screen before it was cool, and was trying to program in C when I was in you know eighth grade, um, which was really hard on those ugly green screens, by the way. <laughs> But I never really considered uh, technology as um, as a degree, and I should have. And I only sort of realized it about halfway through Stanford. And I probably wouldn't have gone hardcore engineering, but mechanical engineering, I think, would have been the perfect undergrad uh, degree for me. Like everything about it, I loved once I figured out what it was. But I just had never pictured myself as an engineer. So, mm-hmm. but I do think that the the familiarity and the comfort with technology started early for me. And I always viewed it as a tool and as a way to do what I needed to do better, faster, you know, more efficiently. So whether that was, you know, writing papers in college or, um, you know, afterward, you know, how can I leverage this thing um, to do, to create more business value? So I always came at it from some sort of hybrid of technology and kind of almost humanities where I got my mm-hmm. degree in international relations. So um, it wasn't, certainly wasn't directly applicable, but I did, you know, there was a lot of econ in it. So thinking through the way that technology could solve business problems. Problems I think I've been doing my whole career. What I found really fascinating when looking into your background is actually the diversity of roles and fields that you've covered, even within the jobs that you've had, because you were both at Visa for eight years and then Salesforce for eight and a half. So I I found it so interesting that you were able to move from doing things like real estate to IP to strategic operations. What do you think enabled that flexibility within your career? Because I've definitely had women come on to this podcast and say, you have to be strategic about where you're going if you want to make it to the top. And you have, yet you've also done a bunch of very different things. So what gives? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I do think it's important to have domain expertise at some point in your career in anything so that you can, you can sort of fall back on that and build it from a base, but people get to be CEO. They haven't done every function in the company. There's literally no way that you can be an expert in every single function. So I think it's more about taking those experiences and sort of how do I extrapolate from this to something broader? And for me, that was the, you know, the first big pivot was I was running finance operations at Visa. I was doing a bunch of big strategic purchasing type deals. Mm-hmm. And the CFO came to me and said, I need you to flip this um, the other way around and go do deals externally with uh, and start a biz dev team. So for me, it was sort of, okay, it's adjacent. It's not, it's not crazy. I am doing right. this kind of thing. I know how to, uh, to, to work a big deal. So it kind of came about that way. And, you know, when I saw it as, um, 
there's a, there's a core set of skills that are fungible and I can take those and, and put them somewhere else. And then there's domain expertise and that's not as fungible. I think some of the building blocks of earlier in my career, being a strategy consultant, you have to get smart on an industry really fast. You have to come up to speed. You have to be an expert uh, or at least look like an expert um, in the first six right. months. And, you know, you have to really sort of, um, you know, be able to um, quickly pivot and, and, and learn the, the key things about what drives a business. So I think putting those two things together, I have these fungible skills that I can use. Uh, and then I've got the ability to come up to speed rapidly on a new subject. Then, then I think you can sort of make that portable. Then you have to convince other people that it makes sense to, to, for them to take a risk on something that, you know, maybe you haven't done before. So that's where sort of explaining, uh, those, you know, why that proximity makes sense, um, is kind of important and putting yourself out there a little bit. And I think you've extended that success outside of just your career trajectory, but into actually the impacts that you've made in these different companies. So, you know, in your eight and a half years at Salesforce, when you started, the company had 8,000 employees. And by the time you left, that number went up to 55,000 employees. It also went from being a $3 billion company to a $22 billion top line. So, you know, we've spoken a little bit about your career growth. uh, And of course, growth is a big part of your career trajectory. But it's also a very hot topic when it comes to the innovation space and the product space today, too. So as far as growing a company, what are your biggest secrets to growth? Do you think there are core principles that are universal behind growth for a company? I do. I think first there's a growth mindset. So it's really how do you take a you know a blank page to a piece of paper and not be constrained by um, maybe the things that you've done in the past and. Mm-hmm you know, part of it, you just have to start with a great product. You know, that's, there's some building blocks that, that, you know, if there's not product market fit, no, no amount of great strategy and growth plans are going to, are going to make it stick, but even uh, razzle dazzle won't help. No, at that point. no, the jazz hands doesn't help at some point, but, um, you know, assuming that that's true, you know, I do think there's right ways to resource things and there's a whole ecosystem of support that comes around it, whether that's the the marketing or the demand gen or the partners, um, that can, that can help you. It's, it's, it's all teamwork. Um, I don't think it's a single individual. You can have a great salesperson they're going to work in a vacuum. Maybe they sell a couple million dollars worth of software, but you know, they have to bring everyone else along with them. So you've got to be able to really sort of think as a network and as part, as a widget in the system almost, um, which then kind of goes a little bit to ego. Like this doesn't, I like, I don't make this work. This whole thing has to come together to -hmm. make it work. So, and that's the other thing about scaling a company. I think, you know, when you go from something like uh, 3 billion to 22 billion um, or any multiple thereof, whether it's a hundred million to a billion or zero to one or zero to one, things change with scale. People's jobs, get bigger and they get bigger and they get bigger. And then it makes sense to maybe split them into three pieces. And Mm -hmm. then you have to sort of deal with, um, helping bring people along who are great people, but running a whole department may not make sense anymore. Running one pillar in the department may make the most sense, but that pillar is bigger than the whole job that they had four years ago. But it's, it's sort of, okay, now step back. I need you to specialize and go here. And so, and, and you do that time and time again, when you're scaling a company and you have to, whether that's in the finance function, the GNA functions, uh, in the sales functions, anything like you have to be able to get broader, 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 broader. And then sometimes people are going to ask you to go 
grow narrower. And, and I think it's not necessarily taking that as an ego blast, but saying like, okay, now I have an uh, opportunity to grow it all over again. Like, let's go. And, and then sort of showing you can recreate the magic. So there are a couple things to scale around. It's a lot of people stuff. And, you know, it's funny in business school, when, uh, when, you know, we took the people classes, it was always like, oh, really? Like, we got to take the touchy feely woo woo classes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it turns out those were the most important ones. It's so funny because when I started out in product, people kept on asking me, why do you have a master's degree in communication? And I was like, I get it. Fair question. An MBA probably would have made more sense on, on a clean piece of paper on a resume, but most of my job is really communicating and conflict management. And it's all these like woo-woo frameworks I learned about in school, how to mediate or how to find a common ground that I never in a million years even myself thought would be useful. I feel like the way that you communicate and the way that you speak about the companies that you've been in is very agile. And it actually makes me think of them as like these startup companies that are free from things like regulation or bureaucracy when In reality, I'm sure that is far, far from the case. So how have you seen your agile mindset actualize in those companies? How have you helped companies remain more agile? And what are kind of some of the takeaways that you've seen in your pursuit of agility in the tech space? Oh, that's a good one. I think that agility is sort of you know, I feel like people, you know, people are, um, you can coach them on things and you can, um, you know, tell them, but but there's like a selection process for like, who are my people? And I think you have to be very careful with that because then you get into diversity and equality issues on, you Mm -hmm. can't pick everybody that looks like you, um, or thinks like you, or, you know, is like you in terms of background. Um, but thinking through, I'm more talking about a, like a hustler mindset. And, uh, like, I like to pick hustlers. Like I like to pick like the A minus student that always wanted to have an A and like, (laughs) was like, just had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. It was going to work like that much harder. So I think it's sort of, um, it's, it's, that's, it's thinking about things like that. It's thinking about how do you, um, not be constrained by the past because you have to reinvent yourself and you have to reinvent your company when, uh, when you're scaling and when you're doubling and you're doubling again, everything changes and it's a different mm-hmm. company. When I left Salesforce, it was a different company than the one I started at. It was a great company when I started and it was a great company when I left, but it wasn't the same company. Totally. And so, um, it's really kind of that, um, it's sort of the flexibility of, of thinking that way. And it's also, I think, sort of being open to, um, being open to those opportunities when they come in. So I sort of, I had someone at, when I was at Visa, call me um, the Statue of Liberty. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's hilarious. She said, well, you like always taking in the the huddled masses and the, like the tired and the broken. (laughs) And it was kind of true. I was kind of the queen of the Island of Misfit Toys. Like I would just, every time a function was broken, it was like, okay, somehow find its way to me. And, um, and I never, you know, it was, there was nothing that was too mundane or, you know, not sexy enough. Like I was just like, sure, bring it on. I'll fix it. So it it sometimes got you stuff that was like no fun at all. Like when I was at, at, at Salesforce at one point, we had done this big payroll transition. It was completely broken. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll try to figure out what's wrong. I had no idea. It was like getting on conference calls every morning with the CFO at six in the morning, uh, who was not a morning Fun. person, by the way. So he was never happy about it. And it was, you know, it turns out when you pay, don't pay people or you pay them incorrectly, they notice right away. 
it was, it was sort of this, we've got, we have to try something and we have to, um, you know, think about this differently and, and come at it. But I was always willing to take on like the, the next project that, um, sort of needed a fix. And I don't like to call myself a fixer because then, or like a taking care of the shit, sorry. Uh, mm-hmm. because then you kind swearing's of, swearing's allowed. Then you, you swearing's <laughs> allowed. Okay. Cause like when you say like, you know, I fixed the shit, you get the shit. And so, um, at some point you can't just be, you know, the recipient of the garbage dump, but, you know, showing that you can take on a challenge and showing that you can take on something that no, literally no one else wants to do and, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and do it right and get it working and humming kind of sets the, the baseline and the credibility for being able to take on other stuff, maybe other stuff that you do want to do that you say, Hey, that looks kind of interesting over there. People think of innovation as oftentimes this like very sexy thing of like inventing the new iPad or whatever it may be. But oftentimes it's actually just like decluttering those really problematic processes or fixing something that may be broken and is impacting, you know, the company in a really, really meaningful way. So after this career full of companies that everybody's heard of and and fixing a bunch of different problems, a year ago, you end up at Diligent. What brought you to Diligent and what is it all about? Sure. You know, I, um, I wasn't necessarily looking to make a change, but I had been at Salesforce for eight and a half years. And I, I think that you do, um, not really time out of companies, but it's good to get a new challenge in and you start to get too comfortable. And so, um, I was, I was open and I had met the, the CEO, Brian, maybe a year prior. And he'd said, you know, Hey, I might be thinking about this thing. Are you interested? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm good. I'm good. I like, nope, no, thank you. And then he called me back, um, you know, in around February and said, so I'm still thinking about the thing. Are you interested? And I said, nope, nope, I'm, I'm really good. I'm not interested. And then uh, he called me back uh, a couple of, well, he said, oh, he said like, it's also, it's in New York. And I said, no, definitely not interested. I'm not a New Yorker. I'm a California girl. And uh, <laughs> so then he called me back again a couple months later and he said, well, you know, this whole pandemic thing, like it sort of taught us that we don't necessarily need need to, uh, need you to be in New York. And I said, okay, well then let's talk. So that was sort of when we started talking. And Mm -hmm. I think what really got me was, um, you know, you start, I'm sort of on, maybe I have another job in me. Maybe I have two more in me. I'm certainly going to do more board of director work, uh, later in my career, but, um, I was sort of thinking like, you know, what, what is my next thing? And, you know, I, I enjoy, I, I really, I, I can't speak highly enough about Salesforce and the, and the absolute machine that it is. Um, but I also was sort of thinking about what is my legacy and what do I have the power to change and, uh, and how can I be involved in that? And, you know, was it going to be, uh, I sold a ton of software on the internet or was it going to be, you know, I did something that potentially moved the needle. So in June of 2020, Diligent had spun up really quickly after some of the events with George Floyd, um, something to help address the um, diversity of boards. And I, it was really appealing to me because when I had looked for my first board and, it, you know, back to setting your intention and telling the world, I had literally told the world, like, you know, this is my career ambition. I want to be on a board. I'm giving myself three years. And, you know, I, I did, I did a lot of work. I did a lot of, you know, studying and I did a lot of networking, which I play an extrovert at work, but I'm actually not super extroverted. I'm situationally mm-hmm. extroverted. So, uh, you know, I had to go to the cocktail parties and introduce myself. And it, it's, that's the 
greatest form of torture for me. So, um, but I had done all this stuff and I had gotten on a board, but my, um, you know, the question that in these board interviews, almost always the very first question is, so who do you know on the board? And it's sort of like, you know what? I'm not on board. So I actually don't know anybody on the board. That's the problem, right? That's the problem. It's chicken and egg. And, and then the second I got a board, uh, the call started coming in. Oh, I see you're on the board. Can you take another board? And I said, well, where were you, you know, two months ago? Yeah, when I was begging you (laughs) to to take me. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I was very firsthand aware of the nature of the networking. I do not think it is anything nefarious at all. Honestly, I think Mm -hmm. people have groups of people that they know and they're comfortable with. And on a board, you have to deal with people for a decade or more. Um, and it's a collegial thing you have to get along. And so, you know, it's very, very natural to say, well, Oh, I know Bob, like maybe let's ask Bob. Um, and I do think that there is, there's a, so, so breaking that network, um, and saying we can introduce more people, people of color, women, and give them that first shot at the networking piece of it so that at least they're in the line of sight, at least they, um, you know, have that opportunity, um, was super compelling to me and it, it made all the sense in the world. And it was sort of like, okay, this is a way that I can actually make a difference in board diversity. And I, and I really feel like board diversity is so much more than board diversity. It's great for the company statistically boards that are diverse and leadership teams that are diverse are more higher performing. They are, um, more likely to have long-term sustainable value. They have a wider aperture on the world. And, you know, so they're more likely to have a better line of sight to their customer base, their partner base, their employee right. base. So, you know, there's, it, it's hard to argue how it could be bad for a board to be, um, to, to reflect the world. And so, you know, I, I was becoming very passionate about this and it felt like a way that I could put a little bit more, more wood behind the arrow of, of board diversity in general. Yeah. And I think technology, when we talk about it, of course, it's been applied to everything and everything. I mean, ERP, CRM, but I guess when it comes to governance, risk and compliance, I think that's actually not really been done before. So when it comes to diligent innovating this space, what do you think enables it to do so outside of what you just discussed from the technological perspective? And and what is the ambition really there? Yeah. I mean, the ambition is big. (laughs) I view it as the third leg of enterprise software. So in the same way that ERP came together in the 80s and 90s as, you know, starting out with finance and then extending from there to, okay, what are all the things that touch this? It's logistics. It's it's T&E, it's payroll, it's uh, procurement, and all those things make sense to come together and the pieces fit across each other. And then, you know, Salesforce did the same thing with CRM, starting with sales, but then saying, you know, sales, it makes sense to have service because they're both about the customer. And then what about marketing? Because you have to, you know, you got to tell them what to buy. So then it became sales, service, marketing, commerce, on and on and on. Um, in the same way, I see how the puzzle pieces fit together. I have seen this movie before and I know how it ends. And it is the pieces of data that you can take across the enterprise and across the silos and make all of it stronger and say, it's not just governance, it's governance, risk, and compliance. It's looking at your supply chain risk and your cyber risk and your enterprise risk. And it's looking at how do you leverage the best, you know, most, most recent technologies to make that easier 
easier for people and and better. So, you know, I at uh, at Visa and at Salesforce, I held a lot of the SOX controls, a ton of them, and it was a nightmare. And and it was spreadsheets and, you know, following up with people and all this crazy stuff and it was it was looking at a sample. So the auditors would come in and say like, here's the sample of stuff we need you guys to go pull. And not only was it a nightmare to go pull it, but it was super manual and it was like maybe 5% of the transactions that we had done in any given year. And you look at that and you go, okay, well, technology can totally solve that. You know, we right. can use AI, we can use ML, we can use, you know, APIs and connectivity to go down in, grab all of the data, not just a sample, look at it, like analyze it for pattern and see, you know, things like fraud or risk and, um, and highlight those in a way that, you know, can keep companies out of trouble. It's super, super powerful. And it's kind of crazy that it hasn't been done in the past. And the ability to tie those pillars together to say, you know, a CFO could have line of sight over all of those or a GC. And, you know, to say just one, just the CFO or the GC should see only this pillar or that pillar. It's, you know, it doesn't make any sense at all. So um, I really see it as trying to build an, like a generational software company um, that will be really a standard leg of the stool of enterprise software. It's so interesting that you say this because in my experience, what I've seen is when people hear legal, compliance, risk, it's almost like the antithesis of innovation because you kind of want to, for the lack of a better saying, move fast and break things. But clearly we've seen the detrimental results of those things. So often in my role, when I think about having my biggest ideas, I think, oh gosh, what's legal going to say or what's compliance going to say. So do you think that technology is actually removing some of those, not just the operational parts of compliance and, and risk, but also the positioning of risks role in innovation? hundred percent. I think that, um, so I'm with you and having been an operator and having been on the side of the business of trying to get stuff done, you know, I think that, uh, the role of, uh, of technology is, is to help and assist and clear the way. And by the way, enterprise risk management doesn't mean there's no risks. Enterprise risk mm-hmm. management just means, you know, what the risks are and that you are making a calculated business decision to, um, to assume part of the risk and to mitigate the part of the risk that you can. And so, Right. Um, you know, why you wouldn't want broader line of sight to be able to do pattern recognition and to, to at look at what's going on. And, you know, if you do want to move forward with a project or an idea to be able to quickly, you know, vet and screen that idea, if your, if your technology department or your, um, your GC says, you know, you can't move forward with starting this new project because we haven't done this, you know, thorough analysis on, you know, your supplier, wouldn't you want a, a way to just go, like, no problem. We got it. We did, we did it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and everything's clean. So it's too often seen as a blocker, but often when it's seen as a blocker, it's because there is no technology. It's because everyone's like sort of manually right. doing this in the background. And the, I'm literally making flowcharts, making flowcharts, <laughs> making stuff up, like sending emails out and asking questions mm-hmm. and getting questions back. And if you could automate it and you could make it seamless and easy and you could hold people accountable because you're like, you know, look, you got that four days ago. I know because I can see it. Um, so mm-hmm. when, when am I getting my answer and hold yourself to um, the SLA? 
LAs that you set up, I think, you know, that can help. And GNA is constantly squeezed, right? Like no, like it, they don't get the same amount of resources and they don't get them, you know, as you right. scale a company, uh, you don't scale the back office at the same rate. And so, you know, it's, it's like literally a constant squeeze that, that the, the back office functions that the risk audit compliance, um, GNA functions live with. And so giving them the tools can often be just a lifesaver for them. And they're not, you know, they're not sticking gum in the, in the machine just because, you know, for, for sport, although I know some people sometimes think that they're doing it because they literally don't have the time and, and headcount to, to get it, uh, you know, on the same schedule as your urgency might, uh, might need. So I think it actually can unlock a lot of things and make it more of a partnership where, um, you know, the, the operations of the business are fully supported by, um, by the, the risk audit compliance functions and that they're working together seamlessly and avoiding risk, or it's not avoiding risk. It's minimizing and dealing with risk. Right. And acknowledging and documenting it and creating those processes. No, super, super amazing. And really, really excited to see where this goes. So I guess on that note, before I let you go, I'd love to ask you one last innovation question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? Wow. Uh, One month from now, I think... I will be cranking away, but we are working hard to get the diligent brand out there. So I think that, you know, we're starting a brand campaign and we're doing a couple of cool things with Fortune and some other, some other venues. So we should be, uh, we should be more of a household name. A year from now, I suspect we will uh, be 50% larger and, um, and really um, thinking about how we can um, innovate more. We, we put out an ESG product and um, thinking about how do we continue to build out that ESG product in a unique way that's not just form fill. We've added some automation and, and some pretty deep things on carbon and greenhouse gas. And it's another place that I'm super, super passionate about. So I hope to be really getting consciousness around GRC incorpor- incorporates ESG, that there are risk and compliance and governance issues that you must deal with if you want to um, have your best foot forward on ESG. And 10 years from now, I expect GRC to be a household name and Diligent to be a household name. Very, very exciting. And I'm super excited to see another success on your resume and the way that this is also going to impact the innovation world as a whole. So thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.